When I was in college, I developed a love for biblical prophecy. And I think back in 1970, Hal Lindsey wrote a book called The Late Great Planet Earth. How many of you have read that book? Yeah, we got quite a few here. The Late Great Planet Earth. It was a biblical study on the future of our planet. And it sold over 15 million copies. And so it actually was, in the whole decade of the 70s, the number one bestseller in the country of nonfiction works. And the book was featured on a primetime television special that had an audience of 17 million people. And as you can imagine, especially on a college campus, it seemed like everyone was talking about it. In the late 60s and early 70s, you could talk about on a college campus with just about anything, with just about anyone. And even though there would be sharp disagreements, students on campus would be interested, interested in talking about it. And they passionately wanted to express their own view, and they wanted to try to convince you of your view. And unlike today, the discourse was civil, for the most part. And at the tables and booths in the student union building, there would be lively discussions, discussions about the Vietnam War, the peace march that was coming up on Saturday, social justice, racial issues, about lettuce boycotts and desegregation, politics, and of course Watergate and impeachment. Some things never seem to change. But everybody wanted to talk about these things. And even though, and, and they even wanted to talk about what the Bible said about the end of the world. And the way I put it, when I went into the Student Union building, I'd have a copy of Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth in one back pocket, and I had the, the, good news modern ver, uh, the Good News for Modern Man version of the Bible in my other back pocket. Maybe not literally in my back pocket, but I always carried those two books around with me for a while. And it went something like this. I'd sit down with somebody, and we'd start talking about these things, and I would pull out the book and start saying, well, here's what's, what's going to happen to the earth. And so after scaring them with what the Bible says about how the world's going to end, I would often have the opportunity to share the gospel from God's word. And it's kind of a backdoor way that hits on the practical aspects of biblical prophecy. Biblical prophecy is always given for some practical effect in the here and now. It's not just about issues that are fascinating to speculate about, as fascinating as they are, and, and with people walking away no different than they were before. It's not just so we can put all the, the pieces of the puzzle together and chart it with large diagrams and circles and arrows. And In fact, I've always called those Hal Lindsey charts. And uh, so we know what is going to happen when. While all these things are helpful to know, and we probably should know them, the Bible clearly tells us of some of the practical effects of biblical prophecy. It tells us why God has revealed these things in his word for our benefit, for our blessing even. And one of the practical aspects of biblical prophecy is that it calls sinners to repent. It calls sinners to repent. And we'll see that in a little while in our text in Romans chapter 11, verse 27. It calls sinners to repentance and for God to take away their sins. And also, biblical prophecy confronts believers with God's sovereignty, or comforts, not confronts, well, it does that too, comforts believers with God's sovereignty over the world. We learn that God has a plan, and nothing is going to thwart that plan, and that God keeps his, his promises. So if you would turn for a moment to Paul's first letter to Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 
at verse 16. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, Paul is telling the Thessalonians, this is what is going to happen. Verse 16 of the fourth chapter. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, do you see what it says there if you're looking at it? Comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another. These words of prophecy comfort us. Biblical prophecy all exhorts, also exhorts us as believers to holiness, to holiness. We are to live holy lives, and we will one day stand before God in holiness. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, right across the page from where we were in my Bible in 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13, it says, We are to abound in love for one another, abound in love for one another, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before God, our God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So that we will stand before God in holiness. And then in verse 25 of Romans chapter 11, that we'll look at in a little while, biblical prophecy is aimed at curbing our pride. Paul writes, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. And so the passage that we're looking at this morning and over the next couple of weeks, verses 25 through 32 of Romans chapter 11, Paul is concluding his discussion that he began in chapter 9. And the main point, the main idea, the main argument of this 11th chapter of Romans is that God is not through with the Jews. God is not through with the Jews. Even though ethnic Israel, the Jews, have rejected their Messiah, Jesus Christ, God has not rejected them. Paul says, may it never be. God will never reject them. So I just want to review this 11th chapter a little bit. First in verse 1 of the 11th chapter, Paul says that he is a Jew whom God has saved. He is a Jew, God has saved him, therefore... God is not through with the Jews because Paul is a Jew. Secondly, Paul shows us that God has preserved a remnant of saved Jews. Even to the present time, there is a remnant of Jews saved according to God's gracious choice. And then third, Paul uses two parallel illustrations to show that because of God's promises to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he will also bless their descendants. And so he uses the illustration of the piece of dough that is consecrated to God. If the first piece is holy, then the whole lump is holy. By faith, Abraham was consecrated to God as a first fruit, as it were, so all of his descendants are also consecrated to God. And then Paul expounded on the metaphor of the olive tree. If the root of the olive is, tree is, is holy, if Abraham, the root is holy, then so are the branches. Because of God's promises to the patriarchs, again, he will bless all his descendants. And then fourth, Paul argues that God is able to graft the Jews back into the olive tree. They had been cut off, but now he, there is coming a time he'll graft them back in. And now Paul ends his argument, and in doing so, he makes a prophetic revelation. 
God has revealed something to Paul regarding the future of the Gentiles and the Jews, and he wants us to understand it so that we will grow in humility, in humility, that we would not become prideful, that we would not, as he put it, be wise in our own estimation. And so the purpose of prophetic revelation is not that we would gain some kind of knowledge and insight that would make us better or make us wiser than than others or superior to others, that we can be conceited and arrogant. This is the third time he's told us, he's cautioned us about becoming prideful or arrogant or conceited, that we have it all figured out. We know how this this is going to go. That is not the purpose of the study of biblical prophecy. Understanding God's prophetic revelation of salvation history from beginning to end of how he brings us in salvation to him should curb our pride as we realize his sovereign plan and power. So please turn to Romans chapter 11, verse 25 again, the 25th verse, Romans chapter 11. And here Paul is concluding his argument that God is not done with the Jews. They are still part of God's plan. And God will keep all his covenant promises to Israel. Verse 25. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Paul does not want his Gentile readers to be ignorant about this mystery. Don't be uninformed, because in this case, Lack of information leads to arrogance and conceit. Have you ever noticed that? Lack of information often leads to pride and arrogance and conceit. People who are often the most passionate and dogmatic about things and the most boisterous and vocal about things are the people who are ignorant and misinformed. Case in point, Facebook. Twitter, (laughs) all you got to do, those who are precedent the most, they're the ones that that know the least. And Paul doesn't want his readers to be uninformed about the mystery, because if we're uninformed about the mystery, we can become wise in our own estimation. Now, you remember that in the scriptures, a mystery is not a puzzlement for us to figure out. A mystery is something that was part of God's plan all along. It is God's sovereign plan and purposes from the foundation of the world, always part of his plan, but now it has been made known to us in the scriptures. In fact, in Paul's benediction at the end of his letter to the Romans, in Romans chapter 16, Romans chapter 16, we see it at verse 25, where Paul gives the benediction to this great work that he has written through the inspiration of scripture. He says in verse 25 of Romans chapter 16, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested. It's been kept secret for long ages past and now is manifested and by, the, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, made known to all the peoples, leading to obedience of faith. To the only wise God, through Christ Jesus, be the glory forever. Amen. The mystery, 
It's been made known now. And the point here is that we cannot arrive at some of these profound biblical truths through human reasoning alone. That we can just think it out. That we can, oh yeah, that makes sense. This is, yeah, I've got that all figured out. And therefore, we cannot boast of our knowledge of them. God had to reveal these truths to Paul, who revealed the truths to us. Otherwise, we would have not even known about them, let alone understood them. And sometimes we even have to set aside our logical objections to the truth. So that doesn't make sense. I don't know about that. We have to set that aside and recognize that God has spoken. And so we can either proudly argue with his revelation, thinking that we know better, or we can humbly submit to it. And what do we need to humbly submit to in our text in Romans chapter 11? We humbly, humbly submit to God's sovereign working in salvation history. That God has a plan. He knows what that plan is. It's for the best purposes. And he is working that out. And Paul says the mystery is this. The mystery is this in verse 25, Romans chapter 11. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. First of all, it's a partial hardening. For the most part, Israel has rejected Christ, but there is, is a remnant. But for the most part, they are cut off from God as olive branches have been cut off from the trunk. Most of Israel today is cut, cut off. Back in the 1970s, I had a conversation with a Jewish rabbi who had come to speak to one of my classes. Now, just to tell you how the 70s went on a college campus, at least our college campus, my roommate and I were taking a comparative religions class, and we were taking it at the Mormon Institute. And a Jewish rabbi had come from Salt Lake City to speak to our class. You know, this goes back to that, that kind of openness. And, of course, my roommate and I, we were there to witness to everybody we had an opportunity to witness to, whoever they were. And, and so the rabbi had spoke to the class, and, and after the class, my roommate and I decided we'd go up and talk to the rabbi and ask him if he considered Jesus and John the Baptist to be prophets of God. As a Jew, do you believe that Jesus and John the Baptist were prophets? And his answer was typical of rabbinic style of debate at that time. He said, well, some rabbis believe this and some believe that and some believe that, you know, and those kind of things. And, but when he did say something that was personal to him, it was astonishing. He said, even if we consider John the Baptist to be a prophet of God, God has been silent for almost 2,000 years. We have not heard from God for 2,000 years. I don't think he used the word cut off at that point, but that's what Paul says it is. And, of course, the implication is that if Jesus and John were not prophets of God, the Jews have had no prophets for 2,400 years. They have not had a word from the Lord for 2,400 years. That's a very long time to have not heard, heard from God. And most of the Jews in today are in that situation. They are cut off. But even though most Jews have rejected Christ, it's only a partial hardening. For God has always kept to himself a remnant. There are Jews all over the world, even in this day, who are receiving Jesus Christ as their Messiah for the forgiveness of their sins. So the hardening is partial, but God has also set a time limit. 
The hardening is temporary. End of verse 25 again. It's temporary, the partial hardening, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. When the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, God will lift the hardening. So while today Israel rejects Christ, the gospel is being preached throughout the world, and more and more Gentiles hear the gospel, and they respond to it. And Jesus said, The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world, in the whole world, as a testimony of the nations, then the end will come. God has said this is when the end is coming, when the gospel is preached to the whole world as a testimony to all nations, all ethnos, all world people. We'd say all Gentiles. That same word could be repeated or translated as Gentiles. When will the end come? When the gospel is preached to the whole world. But the process of preaching the gospel and Gentiles being saved, Paul says, will continue until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The word fullness, pleroma, refers to a full number or a full complement of the Gentiles. In other words, when all the Gentiles have been saved that God is ever going to save, God is going to remove the spiritual blindness from Israel. When the collection of Gentiles is complete, when the fullness of the Gentiles have entered the kingdom, have come into the kingdom, the last one has been redeemed, God will then set out to graft Israel back in to the olive tree, back to the root. But before we turn to Israel, I want to just say something so we don't miss the implication of this truth. There is coming a time when God will no longer be in the business of saving Gentiles. There's coming a time. Every Gentile that will ever be saved will have already been saved. No more opportunity for Gentiles to be saved. When will that be? We don't know. It's going to be near the end. Sometime in conjunction with the seven-year tribulation period, we don't know if it's the beginning of the tribulation period. We don't know if it's shortly before. We don't know if it's in the middle of the tribulation period. It's kind of like the rapture. You know, there's the pre-trib rapture view, the mid-trib, and the post-trib. And there's good arguments for all of those. It's the same here. When will the time of the Gentiles be cut off? It'll come to an end. We know it's sometime around the tribulation period, but we don't know exactly But there won't be a single Gentile saved after that period. So the fullness of the Gentiles, that great event, will signal the beginning of God redeeming Israel. And so that's the mystery. That Israel would be temporarily set, would be set aside partially and temporarily until God turns to redeem his old covenant people to bring them to Christ. And so in verse 26 of Romans chapter 11, we have the great decree of God, God's sovereign decree. God says this, and so all Israel will be saved. All Israel will be saved. As God sovereignly orchestrates the fullness of the Gentiles, now he's going to orchestrate it with the Jews. Now the phrase all Israel has spurred a lot of controversy over the centuries. What does it mean by all Israel? Many early church fathers and later the reformers and their followers argued that all Israel refers to all of God's elect throughout history, 
both Jews and Gentiles. Uh, it's what they call true Israel. The, the true Israel are those who have faith like Abraham faith has faith. And whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, if you have Abraham's faith, then you are, are true Israel. That all those who are redeemed, Jew and Gentile, true Israel, that is the all that are going to be saved. But in Romans chapters 9 through 11, Paul uses the word Israel ten times. And every time he uses the word Israel, it refers to ethnic Israel, to the Jews, the Jews only. And the context of these chapters deals with the question of why the Jews were not coming to Christ while the Gentiles were. And so it's unlikely that Paul would change the meaning of Israel for one time in verse 26, where all Israel will be saved, when in the verse right before, in verse 25, Israel refers to ethnic Israel. And then the they in verse 20, uh, them and the they in verses 26 and 27, it refers to Israel. So it's, it's very clear here that, that, that God is saying that it is all ethnic Israel, the Jews, will be saved. Another view is that all Israel refers to the elect within Israel. The meaning would then be that eventually the full number of the elect Jews will come to salvation. Not all the Jews will be saved, but only the elect. Again, that would mean changing the, the meaning of Israel for, for one, one verse. Plus, that makes it hard to understand. Remember we talked about in Ezekiel's prophecy? When God breathes into the dry bones and God breathes life, as Paul said it in Romans, life from the dead. And then Ezekiel says, God breathes life to the whole house of Israel. What is the whole house of Israel? That's the whole house of Israel. So the best meaning of all Israel is the whole house of Israel. And what does that mean? Does that mean every single Jew living at the time when the hardness is lifted is it going to refer to everyone? I don't know what fullness means, but fullness means full, and the whole house of Israel means the whole house of Israel. And I'm going to leave that part up to God and, uh, and not worry about it. But that's incredible. The whole house of Israel living at that time will turn to their Messiah, Jesus Christ, in faith. And how will this happen? Verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 26 again. And so all Israel will be saved, just as is written. And he quotes Isaiah chapter 59, verses 20 and 21 here. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So I want us to see three things in this prophecy from Isaiah. First of all, Israel and the Gentiles are saved the same way. They're saved the, the same way. Some wrongly teach that there's two ways of salvation because there's two covenants. There's one way for the Gentiles. There's another way for the Jews. And since there are two separate covenants, there's two separate tracks of salvation that God keeps his promises, but they are different for, for Jews and Gentiles. But there's always been only one way of salvation, namely to trust in God's provision of a Savior, the Deliverer. The deliverer will come from Zion. The deliverer is Jesus Christ, the Lord. In the Old Testament, the Jews looked forward to the final and perfect sacrifice that would bear their sins. We look back to Jesus Christ 
as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so both Jews and Gentiles, as we saw last week, are part of the same tree. They're not separate trees. It's the same root of the olive tree, rooted and grounded in Abraham's faith and the Abrahamic covenant. Now, this is not to say that there's no distinctions between Jews or between Israel and the church, but to say that we're all partakers of the same promise of the Savior. You remember that 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 promise was given to Adam and Eve when they sinned, and that promise was later given to Abraham. And the second thing we need to see is that there is no salvation apart from repentance. Romans 11.26 says that the deliverer will remove all ungodliness from Jacob. Jacob is another name for Israel. Remember that God changed his name to Israel. All ungodliness. How does that happen? How is ungodliness removed? Describing salvation as removing ungodliness shows, as all scripture affirms, that saving faith always involves repentance. Repentance. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of repentance. Matthew records that Jesus began his ministry this way. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus described his own objective in ministry this way, to call sinners to repentance. Repentance is a recurring theme in all of Jesus' public sermons. He stood boldly before the stiff-necked multitudes and proclaimed, Unless you repent, you will also likewise, likewise perish. Turn back to Acts chapter 2, the second chapter of Acts, verse 38. This is when Peter was preaching to the Jews at Pentecost, and they were pierced to the heart, pierced to the heart by the words that, that Peter said in, in giving them the gospel. And Peter responded to their question, what shall we do in verse 38? Peter said to them, repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day were added about three thousand souls. And the reason I wanted to read that is because what Paul told the Jews to do at Pentecost is the same thing the Jews are going to be told to do in the tribulation period. It's the same message of repentance. When God calls the whole house of Israel to himself and he puts his spirit in them and they come to life. So we need to understand what, what does repentance mean? Literally, the Greek word means a changing of the mind, but it's not just changing our mind about something. True biblical repentance goes beyond remorse. It goes beyond regret or just feeling bad about one's sin. It involves more than merely turning from sin. Erdman's Bible Dictionary includes this definition of repentance. In its fullest sense, it is a term for a complete change of orientation. Involving a judgment upon the past with a deliberate redirection for the future. And so I just want to give you four elements very quickly here that uh, characterize true biblical repentance. And the first is 
True repentance involves a sense of awareness of one's own guilt, sinfulness, and helplessness. True repentance involves a sense of awareness of one's own guilt, sinfulness, and helplessness. Over in uh, Psalm 109, and if you don't have time to turn for these, uh, they're, they're listed in, in your outline, because in the 109th Psalm, on account of his sin, the psalmist David cried out, But you, O God the Lord, deal kindly with me for your name's sake, because your loving kindness is good. Deliver me, for I am afflicted and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. True repentance has that sense of awareness of our helplessness, of our sinfulness, of our guilt. Then there's David's contrite psalm, sinner's prayer, uh, for, of asking God for forgiveness over in Psalm 51. Psalm 51, where, where uh, David is repenting and he's confessing before God. We begin in, in verse 4. He cries out to God, Against you, you only have, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Against you only I've sinned, God. Now that sounds kind of odd because David had sinned against Bathsheba. Since he was king, he had sinned against Israel. The king's sins are always against the nation. But all sin, David is recognizing here, is ultimately against the holy God. All sin is against God. So David continues. See, where am I at? Okay, verse 4. Against you, and you only have sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak, and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. He's not saying his mother sinned by conceiving him. What he's saying is we're all born as sinners with a sin nature. Behold, you desire truth, the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me known wisdom. Make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. True repentance involves a sense of awareness of one's own guilt, sinfulness, and helplessness. And secondly, true repentance apprehends or takes hold of God's mercy in Jesus Christ. We still see this in the 51st Psalm, the first verse. Getting a hold of God's mercy. David began by praying, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. And then thirdly, true repentance means a change of attitude and action regarding sin. Hatred of sin turns the repentant person away from his or her sin. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. So there's the sorrow of the world that we could say is worldly regret, that that leads to death. And then there's a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. The passage describes the difference between this worldly regret and the godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Now, lots of people have worldly regret on account of their sin. They regret that they did wrong. 
They regret that they did it. They regret that they got caught. They regret that their actions hurt themselves or hurt others. They regret all kinds of things. People experience a worldly regret all the time, but this is not a repentance that leads to salvation. For true repentance, which leads to salvation, Paul says in the next verse of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 11, true repentance leads to salvation. The, the true repentance leads to salvation is a godly sorrow. A godly sorrow. What is a godly sorrow? A godly sorrow is one that comes with the realization that I have sinned against God. I have sinned against God. Godly sorrow results from that heartfelt conviction that God is offended by my sin. And such a burning conviction produces in our hearts a godly sorrow. And we look upon him who was pierced for our sins. And we are deeply grieved in spirit. And we resolve with our hearts that we will, with the help of God, as Isaiah said, cease to do evil and learn to do good. Sometime during the tribulation period, when all of Israel is being saved, the whole house of Israel is being saved, there's going to be what I believe is the greatest revival in the history of the world. (laughs) The greatest revival in the history of the world. When the house of Israel repents and God removes all ungodliness from Jacob through Jesus Christ. And then verse 27 of Romans chapter 11 shows us that the forgiveness of sins is the primary need of every person. The forgiveness of sins is the primary need of every person. God says of Israel in verse 27, This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Salvation meets our fundamental need to be reconciled with holy God through the forgiveness of our sins through the death of Jesus Christ. I wrote some verses in the outline this morning that we we can call these the Roman road. People call these and they're listed in your outline. You can look at these and study them as as you would like. Uh, But it's called the Roman road. If you understand and know these verses, you can use them to lead another person to Jesus Christ. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. We all fall short of his glory. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. How does sin pay it out? Death. You sin once, you're going to die. All you got to do is read the obituaries year after year in in the paper. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us. And while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. And then Romans 10, 13, for whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you know and understand these verses, you can present the gospel to anyone at any time. Anyone at any time. And finally, the forgiveness of our sins is based on God's covenant provision through Jesus Christ. This is my covenant with them, the Lord says, when I will take away their sins. 
the Lord God made a covenant with Israel, and he has made a new covenant with all who believe. And we read this for our call to worship. I wanted to read it again back in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through, through 34, and end with this. Verse 31 of Jeremiah 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Shall we pray? Father, we do thank you that you are a God of covenant, a God of promises, a God with a plan to save us from our sins, and that whatever happens in history, nothing thwarts your plan. You see it through to the end. You save, you redeem, you sanctify, you justify. And Father, you are calling sinners to repentance, that they might, that you might remove on all ungodliness and make them your children. Father, we thank you that you have shown us this mystery. This mystery that uh, there's coming that time when the hardening will be lifted, the blindness will be removed from Israel. And the whole house of Israel will come to faith in Jesus Christ. But in the meantime, Father, as we look at these kinds of prophecies, we know what we are supposed to do right now. What are we supposed to do? We are to take the gospel into the whole world. We are to preach the gospel where we are, in our Jerusalem, in our Judea, the wider out, Samaria, and even to the uttermost parts of the world. Father, I pray that understanding your plan and your purposes would instill in our hearts a great desire tell people about Jesus Christ that they might be saved and for this we do pray in Jesus name Amen